Deuteronomy and lead us in prayer one more time. Holy Father, what a great, great gospel promise. Here we stand, but here we do not belong. We look forward to that day when we are in Your presence, Jesus. But until then, we are grateful that Your presence is in our midst through Your Holy Spirit who has taken up residence among us. Thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for making it possible that we, a rebellious people, could have life in You through Jesus. Thank You for drawing us to Yourself. Thank You for the Gospel truth that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Thank You for Your Word. We believe in the power of it. We believe that it's the power into salvation. We believe that it is Your source of revelation from You to us, whereby and through it we can be changed into Your image. The image of Your beloved Son, Jesus. So would You enable and empower me to get out of the way this morning so that Your Word can be clearly heard. And may You move in each of us that we may seek to apply its truths in soil that has been prepared by Your Spirit and in which it can blossom and grow, making us more into Your image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us, we have been for several weeks in a Bible study series, in a sermon series through the book of Joel. And I'd like to invite you to turn there because we're going to just jump right into the passage this morning. Um, Joel chapter 2, starting at verse 25. We're going to go through about verse uh, 28 this morning, um, or 29 I should say, and, and continue the rest of this passage in the following weeks. Um, but let me just say, it's, your presence here encourages me when I look out among you, hearing your Bibles open, and just, just knowing that the songs that we just sang together in praise to the Lord resonate from hearts of the redeemed. So I've already been encouraged this morning and I'm looking forward to the encouragement from His Word. We're going to begin as uh, our passage kind of dictates with the great restoration. The great restoration. You'll see this beginning in verse 25. Hear the Word of the Lord. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. Now, without any doubt, this is one of the more recognizable verses in Joel. Maybe not the most recognizable because Peter made famous another one we're going to come across in just a few verses. But what this verse, verse 25 does, is it provides the perfect summary statement for what God did for the people, as was just written about in verses 21 through 24. So I'm not going to reteach that or rewalk us through that, but I will remind you in, in brief of this. For weeks now, we've been considering this plague of locusts that God brought upon His people. And in fact, in verse 25, He says, My great army. And He brought upon the people that great plague of locusts. Why? to get their attention and to lead them to repentance, right? The people gathered, we saw this in the latter part of 
verse 17. The people had gathered and they poured out their hearts to God, and God became jealous for His people, and He had pity upon His people. And as a result, He answered their prayer. And He answered the great things that the locust had done by ushering in even greater things that He would do. Like, the beast would have things to eat and drink. The people would have plenty and they would eat in abundance. And as a result, they would rejoice in the Lord for the way that He had returned things back to even better than they had been before His intervention with this plague of locust, And now God is saying this, I will restore to you the years that the locust have eaten. This word restore. To restore means to pay back. It, 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 it has the connotation and the back meaning of restitution, right? And God promised that He would completely reverse the effects that the locust had left upon the people. And He would do it in such a way that the people would, they would eat in plenty, just like we just saw in verse 25, and they would praise God for His wonderful dealings. Now before we look at how the verses continue, how the and highlight the three things that God promised that He would do in their lives by restoring or repaying the years that the locusts had eaten. Let me kind of step aside from the text just for a moment and make note of something for us. Okay, Dwayne Garrett, in an article that I've come across that he wrote, wrote these words. He said, God's people experience sorrow and loss, but they also experience restoration. So I'm just taking an aside with you for a moment. Regardless of what you are going through, or, and I would even add this caveat, regardless of the root cause of what you're going through, whether that be sin that God is laying heavy upon you with conviction and discipline, or just a work of God's hand in your life for His glory, glory that may as of yet be unseen in your mind and heart, you can trust, that you can trust God with every aspect of your life. Now, in faith, we can confidently know, Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 8, that for those who love God and for those who are called according to His purposes, that God is working together all things for our good. And according to the next verse, His glory, right? So what God is developing in you and what God may be doing through you is far greater than anything you might be losing in your suffering. I want you to grab hold of that for a moment, okay? What we're watching unfold physically in the book of Joel, in the restoration of land and the provision of the day in Joel, we can anticipate spiritually in the life of believers today. Let me take you back to Dwayne Garrett, who wrote this. 
He, God, will not allow the years of suffering to go unrewarded. And I will add, whether here or later in the presence of Jesus. After punishment comes comfort. And I will kind of reference you back to Isaiah chapter 40, the first one, first two verses of that chapter. And in the end, the end of our days, God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of all His people. We have this comfort in the Gospel. We have this comfort in Christ. We know that He will not allow the years of suffering, for whatever reason they're in your life at the moment, to go unrewarded. So just a little caveat and an aside as we make our way through this passage. Well, let's go back to our text now. And let's see what this physical restoration in the day of Joel looked like. And as a result of God's restoring work, here's a few things that I want you to see. The people would be satisfied. The people would be freed. And the people would be convinced. The people would be satisfied, freed, and convinced. I won't spend a lot of time on all of these. Pretty obvious as they come off the page here, the first is satisfied. Our next verse in our passage says this. Verse 26. uh, 26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Think plague. Think devastation. Think contrition, repentance. Think God showing pity upon His people. Think God being jealous for His people and then acting in this restoration. And this is what He's doing. So the term in plenty means abundance, right? You shall eat abundantly. You shall be satisfied abundantly. The abundance in Joel's day led them to praise. Notice this, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. As a result of God's restoring work, His restoration, the people would not only be satisfied, but they would be freed. Notice what we see in the next verse. And my people, it's actually the latter part of 26, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Now, although the language of this verse gives us hint and reason to know that God is not only speaking of present day, but a time wherein all shame would be dealt with, right? So I'm going to deal with the present time, not at the exclusion of future, but time will allow me to do both. I may address that this Wednesday night when we gather for Bible study and prayer meeting. So For now, let me just deal with this. And my people shall never again be put to shame. God's gracious hand of provision had been experienced by the people of Zion. And it had also been witnessed by the nations. Okay, Just in the same way that they had seen His hand of heaviness, the nations had, and had reason to believe, hey, where's your God? Right? And all the shame that had been associated with that, 
His provision in their life as a part of restoration had removed their previous shame and it had freed them from the shame and reproach. All of this language is specific to our heart even to this day. Had removed their shame and reproach that had been brought upon them by God's heavy hand of discipline. I can't think about these words, shame and reproach, without putting pause again in our text. I'm tempted to stop just in this moment and encourage us to see the beautiful gift that Jesus provided through His work on the cross, right? By taking our sins upon Himself, Jesus bore our shame. He bore our just condemnation and He washed them clean. He washed clean all of those who trust in Him by faith and He dressed them forever in the white garments of His righteousness so that we too can approach the throne of grace free from shame. I want you to see that this restorative work in Joel, physical as it was, set the table for them to be satisfied. Their bellies were full because they ate abundantly. They were freed from the shame that had been brought upon them by their own sin in the eyes of others. And likewise, the gospel provides in a way for you to abundantly feast on Jesus, abundantly feast on Christ, and to be freed forever from the bonds of shame and condemnation that we were born tethered to, but have been broken through the blood of Jesus. We would do well to linger on this subject for a long time, but there's more to consider in this passage. They're satisfied. They're freed. And notice what else. They're convinced. I'll linger here for a moment and ask for your leeway uh, as I kind of deviate just a bit to bring this to bear to our lives today. But for now, let's look at the context here. Notice what he says in verse 27. You shall know. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and that there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Notice how he's repeating that shame thing. He says it at the end of 27. He said it at the end of 26. But here in verse 27, God gives the great purpose behind the devastating swarm of locusts, which had wreaked havoc and led them to repentance. And here was the purpose that the people would know, and it's right here from the passage, His active presence in their lives as their God and His rightful place as their God. Notice, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. You shall know, the other thing, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is none else. If you were in Sunday school this morning with Dr. Bill, you would have heard, I mean, his lesson as he walked us through First and Second Chronicles was speaking and, and highlighting this very thing that God is now saying in the book of Joel, right? With these words that he is speaking in Joel, God is repeating the words that he had always used with his people to stress 
that He is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He remains who He has always been. And He's saying that to the, the children of Israel in this book through this prophecy of Joel. But you look back to even as early as Exodus. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. God told His people, I will take you to be My people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And then He reminds them of how His hand has proven His deity and His place in their lives. He says, I have brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. That language is repeated in the Old Testament from the books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, all the way through to Ezekiel. One in particular, however, seems to have made the point in that day, in Deuteronomy's day, that Joel is seeking to make in his day. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, God says this in the same vein. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and besides Him there is no other. Throughout the Scriptures, God would often remind the children of Israel of His mighty works. More often than not, it was pointing them back to His deliverance from Egypt. But sometimes it would generically be to you it has been shown that you might know. He's, he's using this thing, this, the same statement of His covenant-keeping promise, His covenant-keeping ethic, His covenant-keeping nature to remind the children of Israel of His mighty works. Why? So they would be reminded that He is God. And besides Him, there is no other. And. Sometimes, and this is what I was alluding to when I took my first detour from the text earlier this morning, sometimes God uses hard things to bring about His, pers- His purpose in a person's, or in the case of Israel, in a people's life. In Joel's day, it was locust. Go with me here. In 1967... It was a diving accident. To be clear, and so you're not confused, thinking I'm saying something that's not in this text, locusts were God's tool of discipline. The diving accident that I'm about to tell you about was an accident that took place under God's sovereign hand and eye. Not discipline. But in that, God used it for His glory and someone else's and an entire generation's good. I bring it to your attention. Last year, um, Johnny Erickson Tata celebrated the 55th anniversary of her diving accident. So, now it would be a 56th year anniversary. In 1967, she was 17 years old and was swimming in the Chesapeake Bay. And when she dove off of a dock into the water, she suffered a fracture between her fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae and became a quadriplegic. And she's been 
destined to that chair for the rest of her, since then is how I should say that. At her 55th anniversary of being in that chair, she wanted to celebrate the goodness of God in spite of her accident. She wanted to celebrate the goodness of God from the vantage point of what He's done in her life from the vantage point of the chair, as well as for countless thousands of other people that God has worked through her to speak of the goodness and greatness of God about. And addressing the question in about a 30-second answer, hey, why, why do bad things happen like this in people's life? She simply referred people back to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where a familiar story was unfolding. This is the end of the book of Genesis. It's the end of the story of Joseph. Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers. And at the end of his life, his father has just passed away, and now his brothers were in front of him. They're fearful that Joseph, who's now the second person in command in all of Egypt, is going to take revenge upon them. And he simply draws them back to a bigger picture of what was going on other than, or I should say, in addition to older brothers being sick of a younger brother, youngest brother, which I point to my head because I am one and can relate in the sense that we know how to pester pretty well, especially as we're growing up. But Joseph told his brothers that what they had intended for evil, God meant for good and to bring about that many people should be kept alive as a result of God's hand in bringing him to that place in Egypt. Here's here's what I want you to catch. It's really a posture thing of Johnny Erickson Tata that I want to get across. Despite her life-altering accident, Johnny is an example of one that is convinced that God is present in her life as He was in her accident, and that He is the Lord, and that in Him there is no one else. Above Him there is no one else. Back to Joel. Joel is talking about physical hunger being satisfied, and as a result of God's restoration, the people being satisfied after the plague, physical hunger. But Johnny Erickson Tata is one whose satisfaction is found in the Lord and her whole life is lived for Him to praise Him. The heart that is most satisfied in God is the heart that praises Him the most. This has nothing to do with your singing voice, but all about the posture of your heart when you realize who God is and who you are in relation to Him. And how undeserving the, the, the approach to His throne is, but by grace, He has made it possible for us to approach His throne through Jesus, all of which is undeserved. What we deserved was a lifetime and an eternity of the fruit and byproduct of locusts that come in and spank us for the rest of forever. I say that half-jokingly, right? But what we deserve is nothing like what we received from Jesus. And what 
What Joel is getting at here is that the fruit of one who is most satisfied in God is going to be hearts that praise Him the most. You see this? You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God. Do you, do you see how provision and praise go hand in hand? Who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. And notice what He says they would know. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. The heart that is most satisfied in God praises Him the most. This is just another way of saying what John Piper has said for years and years and years, right? When he said God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Oh God, help us. Prevent us. Move in our hearts in such a way that we do not drift toward looking for our satisfaction in things that can never satisfy. But having had the eyes of our hearts awakened, may we see Jesus as most glorious, most satisfying. And may the robes that He has allowed us to wear help us to walk in confidence that shame has been eradicated from our lives forever by the grace of God. How will we know that? How will we be reminded of that? Well, it will be because within us we have had a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let's keep looking at this text this morning because God does not limit His restorative work for His people to the pouring down of physical rain, which we saw last week, to end a drought. No. He promised to pour out something far better. Look at verse 28 now. Point number two. Is the great outpouring of the Spirit. Notice the words, and this is probably the most famous passage of Joel. And it's, and it shall come to pass afterward, keyword afterward, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. Let's look at these a few different ways. First off, I want to show you the blessing. The blessing in and of itself. Straight from the passage, I will pour out my Spirit. To get the full weight of this promise, it's helpful for us to look back just a few verses to verse 23. Would you look there with me in verse 23 where Joel has written, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. Notice how he describes a return to the cycle of showers and rains that would produce and provide for the health of their crops. Here's what he says. For he has given the early rain for your vindication, he has poured down for you abundant rain, the early rain and the latter rain as before. Now in several places throughout the Bible, the Bible associates the Holy Spirit with water and describes Him, the Holy Spirit, metaphorically as something that will be poured out. Both are seen in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. You might write that reference down. 
Because here's what it says. Here's what God's saying in Isaiah 44.3. And I'm just giving you this as an example of how the Scriptures tie both of these things together. The Holy Spirit metaphorically with that which is being poured out. He writes, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendant. Joel used this same kind of language to draw parallels between the outpouring of rain, verse 23, with the promised future outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So that's the blessing. What's the extent of that blessing? You note takers, I think this is an addition from after when I gave it to Xander. A, the blessing. B, the extent. Notice what he says. On all flesh. How beautiful is this promise. It's a beautiful thing to note upon whom the Spirit will be poured. And Joel elaborates the words on all flesh with a list of obvious contrast. He's not saying that this kind of person who's getting the Spirit will dream dreams. And this person over here won't dream dreams. He'll have visions. He's giving you just a a list of contrast so you'll get the point that, ha, this is all people, right? Hear this contrast. Well, let me just read it to you. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Irrespective of gender, age, social status, the Holy Spirit would be given freely, poured out, lavished upon your sons and daughters, old men, young men, male servants, female servants, upon them all, at one point in time, God would pour Himself out. Matthew Henry, Puritan commentator, preacher, Bible teacher, in true Matthew Henry fashion, he writes this, because that's not how it had worked in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit would come upon a prophet for a certain time, for a certain reason. He would come, across, he would come upon a group of people, but it was never that He would be poured out on all people, Right? So here's what Matthew Henry has to say about this. He says, We often read in the Old Testament of the Spirit of the Lord coming by drops. As it were, upon the judges and the prophets whom God raised up for extraordinary services. But now, the Spirit of God was going to be poured out plentifully in a full stream. If this ever came to pass... Moses' greatest dream and hope would come to fruition. It would come true. You might remember, back in, back in Moses' day, Moses is worn out and God raises up 70 elders who's going to help him carry and bear the burden of responsibility that he has. And, and here's what God said. I'm going to take some of the Spirit, some of the Spirit that was on Moses And I'm going to put it on them. And miraculously, that happened and they prophesied, but the Scriptures make it very clear in the very next verse that they did not continue doing it. It wasn't because they didn't want to. 
It wasn't because they messed up and lost out on the privilege and opportunity. It's because that's not how God was operating within the Spirit at the time. Separately, at that same time, when that's happening with those 70 elders, there were two guys back at camp who were registered but didn't go to the tent. And they even started prophesying. And Joshua, Moses' assistant, he runs up to Moses and said, Hey, there's two guys back there who are prophesying. You need to stop this. And do you remember what Moses said? He says, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. You fast forward from Moses' day up to Joel, and God is promising to make that very thing become a reality. When would God do this? Well, we've looked at the blessing. We've looked at the extent. Now let's consider in just a second the timing of that. The Scripture says in verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward. A lot of speculation on what that means. The time fixed for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is, you might want to be seated for this earth-shattering information afterward. Now the Apostle Peter proclaimed that this vision began to find fulfillment at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to spend some additional time talking about that later again. I've put that on my docket to explore Wednesday night. However, for now, let me say this. Joel's prophecy mentions what will be the result of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. And it's with that that I want to close our time together this morning because it's just too awesome not to reiterate. He says this. This is Joel again. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, note the word prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, note the words, dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, note the word, see visions, even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Let me take you right back to Moses. Immediately after the occasion in Numbers chapter 11, where the 70 elders prophesied, the two men in the camp prophesied, Joshua wanted them to stop. In the very next chapter, Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, they, they kind of bow up a bit. They're a little bit tired of Moses having all the spotlight, and they come up and spread this word, and they say, listen, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has He not spoken through us as well? And in verse 6 of Numbers 11, God brings Moses out. He brings his brother Aaron out. He brings his sister Miriam out. And he says these words. Listen. Because it is, it is really beautiful. Not to, Moses, not to Aaron and Miriam, but for us. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, these 70, these two, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him. Notice how he did it in those days. Here was his medium. In a vision. And I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. 
He is faithful in all of my house. When with Him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and He beholds the form of the Lord. Do you get what's happening, what He's saying there? Listen, if there are prophets in our midst, it's because I have planted my word through a vision on them and they're supposed to talk about it. If there's a prophet in our midst, it's because I have planted a dream and an interpretation in their hearts and they're supposed to talk about it. But that's not how it works with Moses. Because I'm intimately tied in with Moses. And when I speak to Moses, it's mouth to mouth, person to person, heart to heart. Why? Because he is faithful in all my house. The beauty of this prophecy spoken by Joel is that there would come a day. And for you and I, there has come a day that what was true for Moses would be true of all flesh. And now I'm going to classify this or categorize this in this way. Who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. There's coming a day when all who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation What was true of Moses would be true of us. The Spirit of God would be poured out upon them and they would receive Him as a deposit of the close interaction that they would enjoy with Jesus forever and ever when they're face to face with Him. God would make tangible through the cross and by way of the Gospel what He had said from the very, 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 very beginning. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Because of the Gospel, Jesus has made a way for us to have life in Him. For all who trust in Jesus for all who recognize their sinful state and by God's grace can rely upon the finished work that Jesus performed on the cross and believe in Him and confess Him that He was God and that He died and He rose from the dead, they can be saved. And instantly, the Holy Spirit of God moves in and takes up residence, not within a temple, not just within a city, but they will know that I am in the midst of them because we, the Christians, have become the temple of very, the very God. And He has taken up residence in us by way of the Holy Spirit. I want to end this this way by drawing your attention to Romans chapter 5. From chapter 5, verse 3, Paul makes this statement. He says, not only that, I'll actually back up. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope. The hope of the glory of God. And not only that, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, But we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? 
Because we know that our sufferings produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What in the world would Moses be thinking if when he said to Joshua, I would that all could be prophets. I would that all could have the Holy Spirit residing and poured all over them so that they could be intimately connected with God. Would it blow his gourd that there came a day when God sent His Son who would die in our place, take on our shame, so that all who trust Him by faith could be justified, saved, and a recipient of the Holy Spirit of promise. May this lead us to praise. May this even give us different visions of the seasons of suffering that He allows us to walk through. May we see His hand working in the midst of us so that more and more and more we grow like His Son Jesus, aided by the Spirit that helps us see rightly in the midst of our days. May it be so in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are about to sing. And we will sing... A song asking that You would be our vision. Lord, and in light of what we have read and studied, this great future promise that You made possible through Jesus, that we could receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And many of us have because we've trusted Christ as Savior. But Lord, there are some in this room who that may not be the case for. And if so, Lord, I pray that they would come to Christ forsake their sin and forsake their flesh and recognize the futile futile racetrack that they're on, treadmill that they're on, looking for satisfaction in multiple places, all places, when, when any search for satisfaction other than in Jesus is a futile effort. Or would you be their vision that draws them to faith in you, your son Jesus? And for those of us who know your Son Christ as our Lord and Savior, would you be our vision that point us to a a deeper and more intimate walk with you whereby we desire more and more to run away from sin and toward righteousness. For the sake of your great name and for your glory, would you continue to do this work through your Spirit in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.